welcome to the 15-minute juice, where we discuss physical therapy, rehabilitation, return to sport after injury, training, and all things fitness, while also answering burning daily questions, broach the juiciest weekly topics, and educate the masses on the proper algorithm for optimizing their lifestyle. It's fast, it's concise, it's informative, it's juicy. Buy Optimizers Masszymes, 100% plant-based, naturally derived, best digestive enzyme blend out there right now. Highly concentrated with enzymes that digest proteins, starches, sugars, fibers, and fats. Helps to relieve indigestion, gas, bloating, and fatigue after meals. Take it with the meals to enhance the digestion and nutrient absorption. Also helps to improve recovery after hard exercise and hard efforts. So go to buyoptimizers.com and use code JUICY for 10% off. All right, Mike. Welcome back. Another episode of the 15-Minute Juice. Um, got another question for you. You know, a lot of this stuff... Um, between what we're reading on our Facebook page, you know, and then the, the ACL return to play club page, the parents of the ACL, uh, parents of the ACL club, and then the ACL recovery club, we're seeing a lot of questions that are being asked sometimes like, you know, the same questions over and over again, but something I don't see being directly addressed, maybe, and maybe I'm just missing it, but, um, how do we know when the athlete is progressing the right way? And how do we know when they're ready for that next level of return to play? It gets confusing. It gets a little wishy-washy. You know, um, everyone has their opinions on their parents, you know, based off of what they're seeing when they're taking their child to physical therapy. So, but asking you as the physical therapist, in your opinion, how do you know when the athlete is progressing properly? Yeah, this is a, this is a great question. Um, Cause this really, you know, is going to put pressure on parents. So, I mean, we notice in our facility, you know, when parents come, especially if they're obviously under driving age, the parent has to stay with them. So they're in the facility. Yep. Now there are some parents that'll actually watch what's going on and in my, actually, it's not even opinion. I think it's a necessity that you're working with, you know, a patient. You should explain not only to, this is for any patient, what you're doing, why we're doing it, and how it's going to get them better. Yep. And a lot of facilities put people on the table and they have them doing a bunch of nonsense. There's facilities where patients have to walk up to the therapist while they're socializing in the corner and ask them, you know, what should I do next? What should I do next? And there's a lot of facilities where they're just going through the motions or people give them a, a sheet of paper and say, hey, you do these things. And it's chaos. Now, if you are in a facility where there is a lot of one on one attention, that's an opportunity to educate your patient on what you're doing. Again, why we're doing it. How is going to help you um, and expectations of what that movement and position should feel like and understanding the difference between pain from doing something that's challenging your muscles and your body versus pain that is stress on joints and ligaments and stuff that's telling your body it's not ready for that movement or position. So as you explain that to the, the athlete, you explain that to the parent, 
hopefully the parent is paying attention and watching and looking. You know, there are some parents that come into the facility and, you know, they just kind of trust that the physical therapist knows what they're doing. So they sit there and they're on their phone or they're reading a magazine, you know, but I think that with the amount of money and time spent, I think parents should be a little bit more engaged in watching. I'm not saying hover, you know, but check it out. And if the, if the child doesn't feel comfortable with the parent being there because there's pressure and things like that, or they want to be there because maybe they just feel more comfortable just working one-on-one and having someone, I guess, like watch them. Yep. Then the parents maybe stop in like once every couple of weeks to see what's going on or maybe one session, hang in, ask and see, get a little update and then drop them off. You know, because there also is another factor where there is a hovering parent that's pushing the kid and the kid doesn't really want to be doing it. And then when they're not in the facility, you kind of find that out. Yep. There's a lot of factors that go with that. Well, let's just stick on the principle of the parent wants to get the child better and the child's on the same page wants to get better and they're invested in therapy how do we know that they're doing the right things so we look at certain checkpoints of, of that movement you know so we really start with the foundation as to what causes a lot of these movement dysfunctions and a lot of that starts at the core and the pelvis and we look for compensatory factors that happen there so in certain shapes and positions is the person using their back are they extending the back are they flexing the back are they rotating are they losing balance are they even tensing up in the neck or the thoracic spine? You know, so as we start building out, I think this little mini series of talking about what the checkpoints of certain positions will be, you know, this is really the foundation. So we really start with looking at how well the athlete can control their spine just on the back, you know, even on their side. You know, we usually don't do quadruped because after a lot of these surgeries, kneeling, kneeling. is tough yep. for them in a for a certain period of time. But eventually we do progress to quadruped positions. And we look at the positions that a human develops as a baby. They start supine, then they start rolling and crawling, and they go to all these positions. So we look at how the spine starts there. Because if they can't control their spine and their pelvis on their back, they're not going to be able to translate that into the other positions of standing and other movements. So I really start with evaluating that in those basic uh, patterns, and we get them to work on challenging themselves in those positions with more movements, such as just stable spine, stable legs, and then maybe trying to get them to engage some more of their hip flexors, hip extensors, and look at, you know, the spine can stable, and then we kind of progress them through. So we're looking for those same checkpoints of stability to progress through all the movements. So when a parent says, how do I know if my kid is ready to progress? Well, we literally look at how well can they demonstrate control in that movement? And if they can't control their own body without any other variables in a shape or position, they're not ready to add any other stimulus to that, whether it's you know, a higher volume or resistance or a non-compliant surface, you know, so you really want to make sure they can demonstrate those checkpoints, body weight first, controlling their own body. Then when they could actually demonstrate, you know, lower reps or sets of that. So I usually start people off with maybe like sets of 10 or 15 good controlled patterns. Then we'll add higher volume. Let's do that a lot. Let's do multiple sets, multiple reps. We even do that with blood flow restriction cuffs on blood flow restriction cuffs are, you know, these cuffs that we put on across the uh, inguinal part of the thigh or also the axilla to close off the, uh, you know, the brachial or the femoral artery. And it's not full occlusion, it's a mild occlusion. And there's a lot of research showing that the occlusion with the BFR helps to stimulate, you know, uh, muscle hypertrophy gains, cardiovascular improvements. We'll do a separate episode on BFR. Okay. But doing that challenges them a little bit more so we like to add some of those variables of just body weight first and see, can they maintain that those checkpoints of positions and stability first, especially as they get tired. And you'll see 
more often than not, a lot of these athletes, when you start challenging them and just body weight, they start shaking, they start getting tired, they're getting fatigued, they get these little tremors. And all you're doing is asking them to move repetitively yep. in these positions in a clinic with the AC on or the stable surface, no other stimulus. And you can see how challenged they are. Yep. And even this is not even just post-op ACL, even some of the kids are bringing from preventative. When you actually dial them back and you don't let them do this survival technique of compensating to move the position and actually get them to target the right muscles, they are significantly challenged. Yep. So I think if we start breaking out what people should be looking for and they understand that as parents are sitting in and watching their kids go through the movements, they'll know, wait a minute, that doesn't look right. Or wow, she's really challenged with that. Or wow, she's really can't demonstrate control. Or you know what, that looks really aggressive. Why are they doing that? You know, it'll start really getting people to understand, am I in the right facility? And does this therapist know what they're doing? Another red flag is if the therapist ever explains to you what or why they're doing, not once to the therapist just comes up and says, yeah, she did good. You know, again, as a parent, you should ask, well, what did she do good with? And how do you know? And what are you seeing? You know, why is the knee still swollen? What about this? Ask right. the questions. Right. Ask the questions. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I mean, listen, so, I mean, when, when they're progressing, so at like, let's use that example of, of nine weeks, you know, and, and you're having that swelling there, um, you know, at nine weeks, yeah, there could be that, that potential there and, and some of that full extension, not all there yet. So, but clearly those checkpoints are getting missed if it's getting to nine weeks, right? You're not, you don't typically see that at nine weeks. When you see that, then, then is it fair to say that they're missing something in physical therapy? Yeah, yeah, definitely that. I mean, red flags are swelling that is still persisting, you know, a lot, especially after, you know, eight weeks, you know. Limping, um, limping. Yeah, limping, you know, deficient gait. If they're still working on their gait, you know, even if they have full motion, so say, you know, the therapist can push their knee down to the table without any pain and they can bend the knee fairly well, but then you watch them walk and they still limp. That's a motor control pattern. They're not understanding how to translate the muscles into those shapes and positions, even though they have the full range of motion, the joint and the tissue will go through that range. You know, so there's work there. So you have to start with that foundation of walking before you start adding a lot more advanced things because otherwise they're going to compensate. There's a reason why they're not you know, targeting those muscles in that basic pattern. So you definitely want to restore the gait, you know, and then just, you know, a simple stability, you know, they should be able to start demonstrating more control, you know, in some of these like split stance positions, you know, single leg patterns. But I really think that it also comes down to severity of injury. If they have just an ACL, they're usually cleared to start weight bearing right away. So a lot of that stuff should be cleaned up earlier. If they have significant meniscus involvement you know um they're going to be non-weight bearing for a while so that's going to push it back that's usually like a six to eight week mark it depends on how intensive it was on how much severity of what the surgeon had to try to stitch and repair so the non-weight bearing is to protect that tissue and to make sure that it, it's really going to heal so that might push back a lot of it so then gait and maybe some of the swelling will be a little bit more delayed because they're not moving it as much and even though they're doing range of motion or cpm early on and they're doing non-weight bearing stuff a lot of that swelling gets pushed out by them actually moving and exercising, getting that muscle pump. And then, you know, when they're not weight bearing and that leg is stuck in a certain position for X amount of hours and they spend certain time doing their exercise throughout the day, it just doesn't counterbalance. So we notice the swelling continues to kind of accumulate in there a little bit, but that's like some residual swelling. It like right. looks just like a little swollen. 
I'm talking like people that are still going to PT and it's like puffed up. Right. It's aggravated. That's a red flag. It still shouldn't look like that. Gotcha. And definitely, you know, that range of motion, if you know, they're doing activities, but they still have a hard time, like painful getting into full extension and, and, and some flexion and they're doing these advanced activities. It's almost like the therapist like skipped over the range of motion and wants to do the advanced stuff and figures that the knee will just work its way out. That's a red flag. Right. You know? So I think those are some of the earlier progressions you're kind of looking at, you know, making sure a lot of that stuff is cleared up. And then there's other advanced components. Like if they have multiple ligament injuries, like if it's an ACL, NMCL or LCL or some traumatic stuff, like you see more of that in some like football across injuries where there's like arterial damage. We're not seeing a lot of that with some of the high school kids, but right. you know, maybe some of more of these like contact related injuries, you see some of that stuff is a little bit slower, but generally some of the more simple, just ACL tear, a little bit of meniscus involvement, you know, there's some expectations of those progressions. You talked about forward flexion and the checkpoint there. So what is the, tolerated forward flexion that well for those who don't understand that explain that a little bit better but then tell me in what degree do you allow them to go to and why not pass that point so that's that's the great advancement of having a lot of the technology that we're using again like what the dorsa v you know system technology analyzes is when you have the ability to put sensors on someone and watch how they move and you're somebody like Trent Nessler and a lot of the specialists in our field that are doing the research, you start to try to find, you know, optimization of where the best mechanics are, you know, and now that we have available technology like that, we could start looking at what is optimal as we haven't had that throughout the years, but also, you know, centuries ago, we didn't really need to do that because we also were a lot more active and physical as a population. So we just kind of balanced out and did stuff that naturally I don't know, kept us functional. Whereas now as we have a lot of things working against us where we have to try to like optimize our function because we're a lot more sedentary. So now we have to kind of fine tune, well, what does a good squat look like? I know when I'm a, a small child, my body naturally squats effectively, but now I'm going through all these things throughout life that work against me. I'm sitting, I'm driving, I'm on the phone. So now we get these, these tissue adaptations and these motor control deficits that work against us. So now we have to find a way to reprogram that. So how do we find that optimization? Because nobody's putting sensors on toddlers to see what the perfect position is. And also, you know, you grow. So your spine and your legs get bigger. And, you know, like, like how do you know what the right angle is? So I think with the research, they've come to find out that no more than 30 degrees flexion at the spine in the squat is optimal. And that's just saying, can you keep your spine at that just 30 degree angle and keep that straight as you squat down? So as you get lower into the hips, can you keep that spine from staying straight? Because then your legs are doing all the work. And a lot of athletes will flex at the spine because they lose, you know, control of their core and their hips aren't yep. going to work. So they use their back to prevent them from falling on their face or they hyperextend the back. And some of this you can even visually see, you don't even need yep. sensors. You can yep. see they arch their back way out and they can't get lower. So a simple test is sometimes we put people like their toes are four inches from a wall and we have them put their hands behind their head and we say squat down as low as you could go. And sometimes when they're in the middle of a floor and they squat down, they get really low, but they compensate. But once you put them four inches from a wall, they can't squat any lower because otherwise they're going to smack their nose into the wall yep. or they physically can't get any lower without arching their back they or they try back. to move. So that shows them how much control they have. And that's a really simple test to look at. But even dialing it back even more, 
just simply looking at like a, you know, a column core bridge, as Bob puts it, if they lie on their back with their knees uh, bent and their feet flat and they lift their butt up off the table, what are they doing to do that? Are they arching their back? Are they actually keeping their pelvis and spine level and using their legs? Where do they feel that? Do they feel that in their low back? Do they feel that in their hamstrings? Right. So those are simple assessment tools, you know, same thing when we put them on the side and we have them do a sideline hip raise, which is a common exercise you see, are they twisted at the low back? Are they rotating? Are they putting their hand on the table to prevent themselves from, from falling off balance? And is the leg up in the air, is that ankle in line with the knee, the hip, the shoulder and the ear, or is it off balance and rotating because they're trying to counterbalance themselves? The same thing will progress into like a quadruped position. If I put them on hands and knees and I tell them to raise their right arm and left leg, do they extend the back and do they lose balance and tip and rotate or yep. do they flex the spine and try to compensate? So now you start to see where they're using their spine a lot to compensate and if they can't clean it up in some of these basic positions, they won't be able to translate that into a split stance, into a lunge, into a single leg pattern, which are all those positions that translate into the foundation for running and plyometrics and agility. So when parents ask, why isn't my child ready for agility and cutting? And it's because these foundational positions are still compensating. They have to get better there first. Once they are stable in those positions and they can demonstrate they could do it with higher volume, higher intensity, other stimuluses, then we could go stimuli, excuse me, then we could go and we could progress them into these other variables. You can't just have them work in a closed environment in a facility like a PT facility or something. Uh, where there's no other variables, just lease the floodgates and put them out on a field in front of parents, in front of, you know, other spectators, you know, recruiters, other yep. kids yep. and all this other stuff. It just doesn't work like that. It has yep. to be those progressions. So to dial it back again, the parents are watching their kids look and they understand where these checkpoints are. And as we build out our algorithm and our program, those are the expectations that we set. So yep. we evaluate our clients those are the things we explain. This is what I want you to look like. And in our home exercise program and our online program, we make that very, uh, you know, concise and clear in when we demonstrate in the video. So when someone's at home and they're watching, oh, that's right. I remember those are the things I want to look for in therapy. Right. Here's a review. These are the checkpoints. And if I don't look like that, I'm not doing it right. Yep. Two examples that, that we just have recently um, to kind of go on about the progression here. I have an athlete, well, she's a former athlete, but I mean, she's still on her feet a lot and she's active, uh, just had surgery, bilateral meniscus debridement, okay? She's two weeks, four days. They have her leg pressing. Now, I don't know how much weight. Um, it could be 10 pounds, you know, um, but why are we leg pressing at two weeks? Would you be doing that with an athlete at two weeks? No, no way. I just think that a leg press is a very aggressive position. Number one, you know, you are on your back and you have weight coming down onto you. So there's a little bit of a survival mode that kicks in. I know they have the stoppers and the guardrails of the weight coming down, but it's natural instinct for people to really push back against that. And they can't control their spine and what they're doing. Even though you're lying and it's supported against something, people can still arch their back or push yeah. through their neck and their head and their arms to push that weight away. And again, you know, that's not, that's not really, you know, a functional position. I mean, there's a time and, and place for that. And I think that 
you know, you could add in a little bit of some of that isolated strength training, but you want to also translate that power into a functional position, like, you know, regular squats, because that's really going to be functionally. I just think that that's a little bit early, especially if they're still having a lot of swelling and there's a lot of discomfort, there's not a lot of confidence going through there. I just think that there's better options of things they could do before doing the leg press, you know, um, you know, safely. And again, you know, even just like, a simple, you know, the body weight squat, you're able to see if they're, if they're compensating, are they putting enough weight through the leg? How can you measure that on a leg press machine, unless you have something that's very high tech and it has sensors on it. But then again, I just, I just think that's a little early for two weeks. It's just, you know, my opinion on that, but I think the bigger concern, instead of just arguing about the, or debating about the position, you know, when you want to use it, I think it's just the fact that she has a lot of swelling and discomfort in there still, that yeah. would not be my best option of what I would do right away. You know, okay. I think we have to clear that up first. Okay. Example number two, we used this in a, in a past uh, episode, um, but a girl that ironically uh, I reached out to the, to the mom and uh, got this information. She happened to send me a video of her doing burpees and kicking a soccer ball and then doing some kind of reaction drill to to the wall. I don't know if there was something up on the wall, but the three movements were a burpee for, I don't know how many, and then she kicked the ball and then she ran to the, to the wall to do something. This is nine weeks. Okay. The mom had uh, explained to me that there was swelling and she was not at full extension. Again, just like I just said, shown the last one at nine weeks, would you be doing these type of things with your athlete no this is this is too aggressive of a movement this is a multi-dimensional movement especially you know even though it's not a full burpee it was like a down to the hands and a kick out there was no chest to deck but even then there's plyometrics involved in that and when you have swelling and there's deficient mobility now your body's going to compensate to execute that movement and again Without the full mobility and muscle control, you know, you're going to get stress on, on structures that shouldn't be taking stress on structures just to complete it. It's a high intensity movement. And then now you are moving quickly coming out of that. So your heart rate's up. So now you're adding fatigue to that as well. When again, there's missing foundational components, you're adding fatigue, you're adding plyometrics, and you're adding neurocognitive, all these things at once. So again, with the kick in the ball, this ballistic movement and then now you're going up and you're running it's just this is just a therapist that doesn't know what the hell he's doing and that's all there is to it and i'm not going to sugarcoat it right. doesn't know what the hell he's doing get out of that facility and it's unfortunate because the parents think that that's what they're supposed to be done in nine weeks so they yep. don't know any better yep. but now hopefully after listening to this they'll understand those checkpoints and immediately if they see that they say what the hell are you doing to my kid yep. this is not appropriate i'm out of here Yep. So that therapist, I mean, again, this, this is a doctor of physical therapy. Like what, this is why the profession is getting a bad name. This, this is giving bad name towards sports rehab, sports rehabilitation, because this is what's going on because people don't know what to do with these injuries. And instead of seeking out and saying, this is above my scope or, or trying to get it, they're just doing stuff to do yep. stuff, yep. you know, and it's dangerous because what happens if she re-tears her ACL? Or not even that. Maybe this is not so much twisting or pivoting. What happens if they tear a meniscus or they get some patella tendon flare up? Like, you know, I mean, if that's your child. It's too soon. It's just too soon to be doing that. I mean, yeah. they would be barely combining those three things with me early on. But, you know, example number three I want to give, all right, because we talked about two weeks, nine weeks. 
let's take someone who is at about 16 or 17 weeks. What are the checkpoints that you're looking for before they would progress to a program like mine, which is a little bit more of that advanced, obviously, that return to play program? So as we're starting to build out our, you know, our algorithm, we realize a lot of the loopholes where what's written on these protocols coming from surgeons. And, you know, the surgeons will make these recommendations, you know, week eight or something, they should be doing, you know, squats or single leg RDLs, but nobody is showing these kids what that looks like and what that feels like. And we know that that is dysfunctional at the youth sport and the high school level. There's not enough coaches teaching them how to do that properly. They're learning from either, I don't know, a senior. So that's a 17, 18 year old who thinks he knows what he's doing. Where did he learn that from? So there's this trickle down of lack of information. So we're just assuming that these kids know what that looks like. And we're assuming also, or expecting that the physical therapist knows how to teach them those things. And we're seeing that, that that's not being done. So as we start to clean that up, we're saying, well, how can we make this better? And, and what is uh, right a good squat, a good RDL? So, you know, as we break down these movements, look for the checkpoints, we are looking for, you know, if we are giving these kids the proper dosing of program and progressions and we're cycling through two, three times a week of them going through practicing these techniques and they're doing their stuff at home. We are expecting that by the time we do the first sensor testing with the dorsal at 16 weeks, they at least have a good baseline of core control for the plank, you know, um, and the side plank. So that means no extension at the lumbar, you know, no flexion and there's good control. Um, same thing with a side plank that they have a stable spine and if you get the hip off the floor, the bottom leg in the side plank is not touching the floor that they can actually push out through the ankle. So they're getting perineal. Uh, activation, which is the muscles that move your foot outward. So there's space between that bottom leg and the floor, and then not just resting that bottom leg on the floor. Um, and obviously the ability to complete the planks for 60 seconds. Uh, you know, the other movement we look at too, obviously is a squat. Can they at least get down to at least 90 degrees with good core control? So no flexion more than 30 degrees, no hyperextension at the back. And then, you know, no valgus at the knees. So the knees are not collapsing in. The feet are not collapsing in. There's no weight shifting from side to side. So that lateral shifting is minimal. And then, you know, a single leg RDL pattern, you know, when they do a single leg squat, is that spine controlled? Are they actually getting into the hip? Are they flexing over the knee and the ankle? Or is it like a real shallow, like a little baby squat? Yep. You know, or are they doing it and losing balance? or are they corkscrewing where the leg behind them is like pivoting and it's like fishtailing and rotating them. Um, and then the same thing, you know, with, we don't really expect much plyometric output at that 16 week mark because there's so much work done on that foundation that again, if they're single leg RDL, we know that takes some time for them to build up that if they could jump and land on one leg, obviously with good control and without losing balance, but we start to see that develop a little bit after that. So probably around yeah. that, five month mark, you know, we start kind of introducing some of that and expect to see some improvements by the next testing, but, uh, and definitely the multi-directional hopping, we don't expect much of that, but we would like to get a baseline on it just to show why they can, yep. uh, can't do certain things, why they're not ready for agility, why they're not ready for running, you know? Um, and then some of the movements that aren't tested with the dorsal V, we just like to look for obviously good alignment and control in the hip, knee and foot with a lunge pattern, a split stance pattern, you know, can they at least stand on one leg for 10 seconds on a stable surface with the eyes open? You know, yeah. we like to progress that to eyes closed without loss of balance. Um, and then obviously a hip hinge pattern, double leg. Can they demonstrate a double leg hip hinge, like a deadlift with good posterior weight shift? Can they put their butt behind them? You know, we're keeping a spine stable and coming up and down. 
you know? So those are kind of really the base, a lot of the functional movements that we look at and want to make sure that they have a good foundation of those checkpoints, you know, and can they do, you know, multiple sets of reps of those movements without deficits and probably with some introduction of resistance right. to a lightweight or a non-compliant surface with some fatigue, like the BFR, before they at least start thinking about entering into your program, because that's where you really take that foundation that we laid down. It's like a base layer of cement. Yep. You need that base layer of cement to be laid down, to be dried and stable before you start building off of it. Yep. And if it's still slipping and it's not dry yet, everything else is going to come tumbling down. That's where a lot of parents and athletes and coaches want to push these kids. That base layer of cement is not solidified yet, and they want to build off of it. And they just build this house that is continuing to teeter and shake, and they don't understand why. Talking yeah. about building a house on sand. I like that one. Yep. Yeah. You're basically, yeah, building a, building a house on quicksand for some right. of these kids. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for know? sure. But I mean, listen, I mean, that, I think that that really gives us, and not just us, but, you know, everyone listening, the parents and everybody that just gave them three different examples at two weeks, what, you know, what you should and shouldn't be doing at nine weeks, what, you know, what I'm, what we've seen and what is appropriate. And then at that 16, 17 week mark, when they should traditionally start to be moving into that advanced type of program where they can get into doing more plyos and landings and, and, and things like that. So I think that this should help educate the parents a little bit better, you know, a lot better on um, where the progression goes. So once again, another great episode. Um, sure, we're going to have tons of other questions. So I'll be seeing you soon. Yeah. And again, I hope that this just uh, continues to just open their eyes up because there's a lot more elaborate, you know, things that we will elaborate on, you know, and build off of on these things. But this just kind of gets them to start thinking about what we're talking about and get the wheels turning. Yep. And then we'll start to build off of this with follow up episodes of getting a little more specific. But this just yep. kind of gets people to open up their eyes. So to some expectations of what they're looking at. Yep. And speaking of the wheels turning in my head, in the back of my mind, I'm going, we definitely need another episode with Trent. I know he's busy, but if we can pick his brain, especially about the new version of what they got going out, out on with the Dorsa V, I know he's talked with Maka and, and some of the other, you know, uh, physical therapists. So I think that, you know, maybe reaching out to him and if we both text him, maybe he'll jump on and we can grab him for a 30 minute call or something. Yeah. I think that that would be super valuable as well. But yeah. again, another great episode. Appreciate your time. Absolutely. See you soon. Talk to you soon. Later. All right.